Good afternoon, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today to this class. We are going to hear wonderful information about the top five legal documents needed for special needs planning. Thank you so much for joining. Before we I introduce in make some introductions of the people that are going to be sharing this information, I will talk a little bit about Partner Research Network. Partner Resource Network is the Parent Training and Information Centers for Texas. We are funded by the Department of Education, Office of Special Education to provide free resources and training for parents of children with disabilities and youth with disabilities that we call them self-advocates. Our mission is to empower and support Texas families and individuals impacted by disabilities or special healthcare needs. We serve parents of children with disabilities from the ages of zero to 26. So that's from birth to 26 years old. Partner Resource Network was first funded in 1986, and now we have four projects serving parents here in Texas. Myself, my name is Veronica Alvarez, and I'm part of the team project. As you can see there in the map, I'm part of the red area. So I'm in Austin helping parents here in Austin. But if you are visiting for another area of Texas, we have a regional coordinator near you. If you need that name, just type it in the chat box and I can um, give you the contact name of that person. Uh, our services are free and we offer parent workshops, youth workshops, webinars, information and referrals, one-on-one -on -one technical assistance. We do a lot of support in the IEP meetings and our meetings. Once a year, we do a big symposium. We also offer parent leadership trainings, youth leadership trainings. Like I said, my name is Veronica Alvarez. This is my email and my phone number. I already put it in the chat box, guys. If you need me, please uh, don't hesitate and contact us. Uh, and please visit our main webpage at www.prntexas.org. And this next slide, this is more contact information of people working for Partner Research Network. This is our project director, Lisa Coward. And, um, Others are see here in um, team project, Rosy Garcia and uh, Maria Cordero in region one. And in region 20, we have Bridget Janes. Um, that's it, what I have for you guys. I'm missing a slide because I changed my presentation yesterday, sorry about it, about housekeeping items. Um, this webinar is being recorded. So um, later on, you are going to receive an email with uh, the slide, the presentation slides and a link to a recording in a YouTube channel for, from Consolidated Planning Group. Also, if you have a question, please type it in the chat box or in the Q&A, and Michelle and Christina are going to uh, answer your questions. Actually, I really prefer, let's stick to one place so that I don't have to try and bounce sure. back and forth. So if you can just put any questions or comments in the chat box, it's easier for me because with Q&A, you have to like mark it as red and do all this stuff, and it's just a little bit more of a pain. Sure, sure. <laughs> You hear it, guys. Use the chat box if you can. Um, and also, at the end of the presentation, you are going to receive an email with a survey for an evaluation about the presentation. Please help them with your feedback. That helps us a lot. And it's very like four questions. It's very, very quick a survey. All right. So now we are going to start our class. Thank you so much. We have uh, Michelle Morris from Consolidated Planning Group. She's a financial planner with a lot of experience helping families with special needs. A question about financial, with uh, about waivers, about she's going to talk more about it. But she, they have a lot, a lot of knowledge. SSI, you name it. And also we have Christina Leisher. She's an attorney and she is the main speaker today because she's going to be talking about the top five legal documents that we need when we have a loved one with a special need. So thank you so much for joining us ladies today. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Veronica, for hosting us today and to Christina for being our speaker and everyone who's taking time out of their day to join us. Um, 
So we work and we're based in Texas, but this information today is going to be helpful for anyone with a loved one who has some special needs. And even if you're not in the state of Texas, I'm sure that you will be able to pick up some helpful information um, and no matter what age your loved one is. So I'm Michelle Morris from Consolidated Planning Group. Like I said, we are based outside of Houston. Um, Veronica did a fantastic job of um, sharing with us the rules of the road for today, but I just want to add one thing, and that is uh, you will, you'll get the slides and a link to this webinar later on today, but we also post these to our podcast channel. So if you're joining us on our podcast and you would like to get a copy of these slides, you can email us contact at cpgcares.net. We'll be able to get you a copy of the slides. So we are uh, special needs planners and financial advisors here at Consolidated Planning Group. Uh, what that means is that, you know, we're well-versed in the areas of all of the different benefits that are available for your loved one, how to make sure you get all of those benefits and maximize them, and that you are not only saving money for your future, your retirement, but also the care needs of your loved one who might not be able to work to pay for their own future. So they need a little bit more help. And that typically comes from uh, their loved ones who are um, their caregivers. So Consolidated Planning Group, um, we are a holistic firm. We look at all aspects of financial planning, not just life insurance or just your investments or just the special needs planning. We take it all as one full picture of your financial health. We have over 30 years of experience with insurance and financial services. Uh, we are members of the Million Dollar Roundtable, uh, the Special Needs Plan Planning Academy, and we are also National Social Security Advisors. Uh, what that means to you really is just that we do a lot of work in this area. We are experts and uh, a lot of people trust us to help them unravel this maze of special needs care and benefits. Uh, people come to us for things like their protection plans, lifetime care, you know, estimating the cost of how much they should save for their future. Transition planning, there's a lot that happens um, when your child turns 18. And we're gonna be talking a lot about that with um, Christina today, but all ages, you know, we need, we always need help. Um, the ABLE accounts and how that can be helpful for you to save money for your loved one. And we are here to educate and advocate for families like yours. Um, you know, fewer than a tenth of a percent of all of the financial advisors in the United States focus on special needs planning. So you are definitely in the right place and listening to the right people. Um, the owner of our company, as a matter of fact, she and her husband have two uh, special needs kids between the two of them. And that's why our company goes this route. Uh, we've been in business for over 30 years and, um, and we really, we live, eat, breathe, and sleep this. Uh, it's in our hearts to serve special needs families. So, um, one thing that we always push and we always want to say is that you should start planning as early as possible. We know that what is keeping you up late at night is wondering who is going to take care of my child when I no longer can. And, and the key to this is developing a future care plan as early as possible. Consider what is going to happen beyond high school. Um, there are vocational options, there are educational options, there are housing options, but you need to plan ahead and you will get the most out of these things the sooner you get started. There could be long wait lists and we would hate for you to find the perfect place or the perfect opportunity, the perfect situation for your loved one and then find out that they have a very long waiting list and you can't get in. So make 
make sure to plan ahead and make careful considerations before you just say, oh, Jacob's older sister is just going to watch watch out after him when, when I'm gone. You know, you don't want that to be a relationship where um, the older sibling or the non-disabled sibling is just assumed to be the caregiver. And maybe they're not ready for that, or maybe they just don't really want that. Or maybe the child who needs the caregiving, you know, maybe they would have more of a feeling of, you know, you're my sister, you're not my mother, you can't control me. Whereas if it was someone else, maybe it would cause less resentment. So just be careful with those things. Um, that is all from me for now. Your very quick tips on special needs planning. And I have a little bit more at the end. So stay tuned. But without any further ado, I would love to welcome Christina um, from the law office of Christina Lesher. And um, we would love to hear about the top five special needs documents uh, that are needed for our loved ones. Oh, thank you both so much. I'm so excited to be back again here with Consolidated Planning Group and with the Team Project Partners resource. Um, I think most professionals that are in this area have some kind of personal connection to the disability community. Um, my, I've been in practice for 20 years and my law practice really pivoted um, 13 years ago when my sister had a medically fragile son who is about the same age as my youngest son. So we've gone through the MDCP one night rider 28 bypass. We've done special needs planning. We've dealt with a reduction in an MDCP or Medicaid home care budget. Um, we've struggled finding care providers, especially during COVID. Um, and now, even now, we, we're still struggling with those issues. So um, I, like a lot of the, the, the um, professionals at Consolidated Planning, have a personal connection, and it's very important to me, um, this work um, that my office does. So I'm very excited today to give all the families and caregivers and guardians some um, information today. So we're going to start out with the next slide. Um, so here are the, the top five. I'm a huge um, David Letterman fan. I don't know if y'all remember David Letterman. I was, um, so here's this, this is a little homage to David Letterman. I don't have a top 10, but I do have a top five. Um, so anytime we're thinking about distributing assets to a child, there's um, a couple different ways to do it. One legal instrument that we'll talk about is a will, and the other one is a revocable trust. We're also going to talk about supplemental needs trust. Sometimes these are also called special needs trusts. Um, for those of you that are not in the state of Texas, you're going to want to make sure you get counsel um, in the state that you reside because the Medicaid rules are going to be different. But some of these basic informations are going to be transferable regardless of, of where you live. Um, so third-party trusts we're going to discuss, and th those are trusts that are funded with someone's assets other than the child's or the beneficiaries. First-party trusts, these are trusts that are funded with the child's or the Medicaid beneficiary's assets. We're going to talk about incapacity, including financial power of attorney, medical power of attorney. Um, and these are not for your children. These are for you. Um, so many times I have the parents come in and they're very worried about making sure that everything's set up at their death. We also want to think about what happens if one or both parents or the uh, caregiver or guardian um, becomes incapacitated. So who's going to take care of you? Um, and then um, I think Michelle and I are both going to talk a lot about beneficiary designations. Oh, yes. Oh, that yes. is something that I know Michelle um, and I both dream about. What that means is that if you have a beneficiary designation on an account for life insurance and you have your minor child or your child that is on Medicaid or has a disability name, we want to change that. Because yes. beneficiary designations are going to control over your will. It's going to trump your will or your trust. So um, we'll continue to talk about this, but I will tell you the biggest um, gap in planning that I see parents do, and Michelle, uh, I think this is um, your professional experience as well as parents doing their state planning documents, getting their life insurance, but then not updating those beneficiary designations. We're, we're going to talk more about and how you can get that exactly right. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about how are we going to distribute assets at death? Um, so a couple of things that we talked about um, in the previous slide, which, which is probate assets versus non-probate assets. So I always 
tell the same story. My husband does not like it. So I have a life insurance policy that says if um, uh, I die, he gets um, um, a payout to take care of our needs. And then if for some reason we both die at the same time, um, our children are named. So when I've named my husband as the primary beneficiary, that is a non-probate asset, meaning he doesn't have to go through any court procedure um, to get that asset. The term probate means the retitling of assets from one person's name to the other. Every state is going to have different types of probate rules and complications. In Texas, probate is relatively simple. So we have clients that we do work with that want just a simple will. I have a simple will. And then I've got trust name for my children. Although with families that have children on Medicaid or children with a disability, I tend to veer more towards the revocable trust. And here's why. I want immediate funding for your child. I mean, I don't want them to have to wait to go through the probate process. I want a revocable trust that's set up that has life insurance funding, that revocable trust the moment that the surviving parent or depending on the caregiver situation. So when somebody dies, there's money immediately going into that trust for this um, individual and they don't have to wait for the legal process uh, as you would with a will. But the wills are less expensive to do. You can appoint guardians for your minor child or your child that requires a guardian. It can also contain a third party supplemental needs trust for your child or loved one that may need Medicaid planning or some type of trust set up for their um, benefit because they are disabled or on some type of um, social security program. And then also we want a trust for minors. So it's not just your child that, um, is needing special needs planning, it's any child or really any um, uh, young person that or other person that you're caring for. So a will is effective at death. You do have to go through probate. Probate in Texas has gotten a lot better, but there is a lag time. So that's why I tend to, for, for families with special needs kiddos, I like this revocable trust. It's more work to set up these revocable trusts during your lifetime. Um, there's certain things that are not placed into the revocable trust, such as IRAs um, for tax purposes. And if you want to have a different person in charge of the money other than a family, for example, a corporate fiduciary, as Michelle was, was stating so beautifully, sometimes a sibling is not the right person to handle the money because we want them to always be siblings. You know, you you can't always create new siblings. Maybe you can uh, have a, an adoption, a formal adoption or best friend or somebody that's so close. But if there's a sibling or sibling-like relationship, we always want to honor that relationship and honor that bond. So sometimes it's better to have a different family member or a bank that's in charge of the money. And if that is a situation you are interested in, I'm going to advise you to look at a revocable trust because the co professional corporations, they're going to like that type of legal instrument better than a will. And regardless of which legal instrument you choose, always, always carefully review those beneficiary designations. This will be not be the last time we talk about it. <laughs> Michelle, I love Excel spreadsheets to track beneficiary designations. And I know you guys have wonderful forms and platforms on to track those beneficiary designations. Of so between course. a lawyer and consolidated planning group, you're going to be in great shape. Um, the takeaway that I want you to know about this slide is that you don't have to plan for the next 30 years. I would say if you would plan for the next five or 10 years, that's doable. Okay. Um, so when you have a corporate trustee that's in charge of a trust for a child, they don't, first of all, they don't charge until they start actively serving in that capacity. So you can name somebody, uh, a, a professional corporation, and then they're going to charge once the trust is funded and they're responsible for the money, typically based on the amount that's under management. And there will usually be the less money, the bigger the percentage, the more money, the smaller the percentage. Typically, we look at one to one and a quarter percentage of assets under management. And you, But you will definitely want to shop around to see who is going to give you the best rate. But I would not take the lowest deal. No. I would say I want to know somebody who is familiar with special needs trust. How many do they administer? Who do they work with when making distribution decisions? 
because in Texas, there's 109 different Medicaid programs, all that have different rules. Most of these corporate fiduciaries are not familiar with these different Medicaid programs. That's okay. We want them to invest the money, distribute the money, but would they need to get um, with someone that understands how these Medicaid programs work? So I hope, hopefully I answered that question that popped up in the chat box. Okay. Why do we need a supplemental needs trust? As we talked about, there are over 109 Medicaid programs. They all do different things and they're all able to help us care for our loved ones. Maybe they're providing housing, attendant services, and most of these Medicaid programs restrict the amount of Medicaid of assets a person can have and still qualify for Medicaid. Typically, we're looking at what we call a countable asset cap of less than $2,000. Now, what happens is if you place money or assets in the name of the Supplemental Needs Trust, the assets won't count as accountable asset. So accountable assets going to be assets that belong in that beneficiary's name, cash, bank, bank accounts, a second car, a second home. So what that means is there's certain assets that are valued at $0, such as a homestead, personal items, car, and clothing. The other reason why we look at supplemental needs trust is not only to be able to give assets to people we love, it's also to protect the beneficiary from themselves, maybe from other people, um, and maybe from creditors. So there's lots of good reasons to leave assets in a supplemental needs trust, even if your child is not on Medicaid or Social Security right now. Maybe you have a minor child and you're on an interest list and you're just waiting till that kid turns 18 so you can apply for Social Security and get Medicaid. You can still do some of this planning now. Well, and Christina, it's important too. I mean, it, it, even if a child doesn't have any sort of disability, I mean, my son, I could just imagine when he was 18, if he inherited a large amount of money straight oh. out of my life insurance, <laughs> Um, is my 18 year old going to set money aside for his future and for, you know, invest it wisely, or is he going to rush out and buy a, a classic hot rod or four? Um, <laughs> you know, you never know. You just need to make sure that they're, yeah. they're doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and, and actually I have two boys. I have a 15 year old who would probably be able to manage that kind of money now. Um, and then I have a 13-year-old that would be right there with your kiddo and buying the classic hot rod. So, <laughs> and then we you can set up in your will or your revocable trust, um, trust for other children. And you can keep those, um, the, those assets in trust until the child turns a certain age. For my boys, I pick 25. I might change that. For Luke, I might make it 22 because he's like, he's an old soul for max i might make it 40 we'll see <laughs> they're still they're still they're still baking we'll see how they work, turn out okay so these third party trusts third party just means it's money coming from some other source other than that medicaid beneficiary and as we talked about it can be in a will or an irrevocable trust it can be established the trust can be established by any person that's going to be different than these first party trusts um, that we're going to talk about in a second. The trustee can be any person or entity other than the beneficiary. And there's no payback to the state of Texas. I have a lot of families that come in and see me and they're like, we're interested in the supplemental needs trust, but we don't want to pay the state of Texas back or wherever state they we are. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. If you set it up and you set it up correctly, then you can put, you can select alternate beneficiaries after your child, if your child dies and there's money left over. So I have a supplemental needs trust that's set up for my nephew. He's 13. His name is James. And it says, well, James dies, then the money goes back to his cousins, my kiddos, Luke and Max. And there's no payback to the state of Texas on these third-party trusts, even though James has been on MDCP since the day he was born. Okay. And these trusts are reviewed with less scrutiny by Social Security um, than supplemental needs trust, meaning there's less requirements. However, anytime you have a child that is on Medicaid or Social Security and there's money in the trust, um, you also need to make sure that Social Security and Medicaid has seen and approved that trust. That's right. That's right. And one thing that, um, you know, there are fewer uh, rules and less scrutiny, but one thing you should know is that you should not use your third party trust to pay for housing, food, um, utilities, normal things they need every single day because SSI will be reduced 
if you use that. Right. And, and you, yeah, and you can, but some, but, but, and that may be for a client or for a family that is on SSI and they had need that full SSI check. Mm -hmm. But if you're, let's say you're getting social security from a parental work record and you're that's not in right, SSI anymore, then you can do that. And so what Michelle's hitting on is that, so that's very important topic, which it depends which social security program you're on which Medicaid program are you on? So that's why like, there's not that many people that are financial advisors that work with families. Always make sure you work with an attorney that this is all they do. So mm -hmm. I don't do family law. I don't do bankruptcy. This is all I do. Just like this is all Michelle, what they do um, at, at their office. Yes. Okay. So first party supplemental needs trust. These are those trusts that are reviewed very carefully by social security. And the person that sets up the trust, we use the term grantor. You may see the term settlor. They mean the same thing. It's who is setting up the trust. And the social security requirement says that the person who's setting this up can be a parent or has to be a parent, a grandparent, guardian, or court order, or under the S&T Fairness Act of 2016, a beneficiary can actually be their own grantor, which is great because now I don't have to go to court or do some other type of expensive legal process if, if, if we don't have an available grantor. The person, just like the third party, the trustee, just like the third party supplemental needs trust can be any person or entity other than the beneficiary. And the person who's on Medicaid, it's their funds that we're using to fund the trust. So here's a little example of a case that I have right now. I have a woman she is under the age of 65. She's on Star Plus waiver. She's getting ready to sell her home and move into an assisted living community. We're going to take her house proceeds. We're going to put them in a first party supplemental needs trust. And so now she's going to maintain her Medicaid eligibility and have money from an asset that was hers placed into a trust for her, her benefit, meaning her sole benefit. So the only money that can come out of this trust is for her. However, if she passes away and there's money left in the trust, she understands that we have to go back and repay Medicaid to the extent that Medicaid paid out benefits. And so if you have two different states that you're dealing with, like say you have someone in Georgia and Texas, you have to pay whoever had the biggest bill gets the biggest chunk of the leftover money. Um, and the assets have to be placed in there before the person's 65th birthday, that's going to be state specific. I believe Florida allows the funding of these first party trusts after age 65. Texas has not done so. Um, and you can name backup beneficiaries. Um, and then sometimes I have cases where child support is causing problems for SSI eligibility. You can run child support through these first party trusts to make it not countable income uh, and reestablish or maintain SSI benefits. Michelle, do you have anything else on this I need to talk about? Um, not that I can think of right now. You're doing okay. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about incapacity. So we've talked about death planning. We've talked about, and, and I hope the one takeaway you have, number one, you don't have to plan for 30 years in advance. That's too much. That gives me heartburn, okay? As a <laughs> practitioner, plan five, 10 years from now. Know that you have to review your documents make sure you get the beneficiary designations up perfectly. Okay, documents for you, maybe your child for disability planning. Even if you're married, you need a financial or a durable power of attorney. So one of the things I like to do is to make sure that we have the financial power of attorney. It's effective immediately, meaning it doesn't, we don't have to prove you're incapacitated for your family or your, your partner or your spouse to act on your behalf for money. And I especially want to send it to any financial institution that's holding your IRA. So I'm named as my husband's beneficiary on his IRA, but that doesn't give me management capability during our lifetime. So I have sent my, uh, my husband's financial power of attorney to his company that holds his IRA for their attorney's pre-approval. So that way, during his lifetime, if he becomes incapacitated and I need to take an emergency loan out or access cash or reinvest, then I'm able to do that. So just because you're the beneficiary of an account, that doesn't give you management rights. So make sure that every account that you have, has uh, the bank has a copy of your financial power of attorney. It will save your spouse and, who, and the people that are making decisions for you if you become incapacitated a lot of time in, in um, expense. So 
Medical power of attorney, this should be a list of people for you or your child that can make medical decisions. This is not going to be effective until you become incapacitated. So when you're signing legal documents, you need to know what they do, who's going to be in charge when you sign it, and when does that document become effective? So the financial power of attorney, my advice is to make it effective immediately. The medical power of attorney is effective when you can no longer make a medical decision. Then we also have a HIPAA release. That is a group of people, and I like a group of people because the HIPAA, it is um, information on you for your doctor. So if you are at the hospital and you want a family friend that's not necessarily making medical decisions for you, if you want them to be able to call and check on you, that, that's who needs to be on the document. And I make the, the HIPAA release effective immediately, and it lasts two years after your date of death. So that if there's any billing issues or any legal issues that we need to pull your medical records, we can do that. Okay. Um, then end of life issues, we have directive to physicians. Um, that is a document that says what you want to have done in case of a terminal or an irreversible condition. And by the way, every state has some version of these documents. They may be called different things. Um, so I know that sometimes the financial power of attorney is called a business power of attorney in other states. Some states have the medical and the financial power of attorney in one document. Every state kind of has their own flavor. I like to keep things separate for privacy reasons. So I don't want your bank to know who's making your medical decisions and vice versa. But on the directive to physicians, this is different than a do not resuscitate. So the directive to physicians is you're in a terminal condition. You have less than six months to live. What type of treatment do you want? A DNR is a do not resuscitate which is I've stopped breathing, I don't want CPR. So I have a directive to physicians because I am in fairly good shape. And if I, um, uh, if I am in a terminal condition, I don't necessarily for myself wanna be kept alive, but I do not have a DNR because I think maybe I might be okay after CPR. So I would say if you're questioning, if you need to do not resuscitate, go talk to your doctor and see if your doctor recommends that. Um, appointment of guardian. So maybe this is an appointment of guardian for an adult child or a minor child. I put these appointments in the will or and also in a standalone document um, just to make things easier in case it's an incapacity issue that makes a parent not be able to care for their loved one. Um, and then I have an appointment of guardian for parents, especially maybe you have an ex-spouse or a family member that you would never want to be in charge of you or your child, you can make those wishes known in writing. And then if you have a minor child, you definitely want an appointment of health care for minor children. I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old, and I have just a group of people, neighbors, um, former babysitters, family members that can make an emergency medical decision if my husband and I are not available. Um, and then some, some families will want an appointment for um, designation of remains. And that is a document that says who's in charge of your funeral and making your funeral um, decisions. And then maybe you want a medical study or an organ donation, all those things. If you want them, they need to be in writing, especially if you're married or maybe this is a second marriage and you have a blended family. It's so important, especially if you have a special needs child or a child with a disability, that everybody knows what is happening, not only for that child, but the transition plan, but what's the transition plan for you? Um, because that is a time of stress when a parent becomes ill or passes away. So we wanna make sure everybody knows who's in charge at what time. And Christina, how do you, how, someone like me, how do we make sure that we have all these things covered? We contact you and, it, do you have like a whole packet that, you know, you make sure they get all, all of these things done and signed, or do you do them one at a time? Uh, how does that all work? So we typically, I, I usually will start, um, I'm a daughter school teacher, so I'll just, we'll, our, our initial homework will be, who's good in your family at money? Who's good in your family with medical decisions? And so we have that discussion at the same time. And we want to make sure who's ever making medical decisions, if it's different than the person that's making financial decisions, that they get along or that they can work together. So we think about the combination of the agents as our, as our first step. Who is the agent? The combination of the agents. We do these documents all at the same time. Unless the family, um, maybe they're stuck with figuring out who the guardian is. 
we'll do some, we'll, we'll get as much done as we can. And then we'll pick up later if there's something that the client needs to think about. Okay, so here we go. This is a big one. I know. <laughs> okay, so this is what I, this is what I, I want every family member to know. First of all, guardianship and is has different names in different states. Some states call it conservatorship. In Texas, we call it guardianship. By the way, family members, if you're out there and somebody has said you have to get guardianship before your child's 18th birthday, eh, no, you don't. Um, you can't get it until they turn 18. You might be able to start the process a few months ahead of time, um, getting a doctor's letter, kind of getting some things put together. Um, but one of the things I want families to know about is that guardianship is a legal proceeding. So what that means is once you start communicating and asking things from the court, certain things become out of your decision. For example, if you have a loved one that's under a guardianship and you want to move counties or to a different state, you have to get court permission. Okay. So some of these things that family members think, oh, the guardianship is really a good idea that in many families it is, but you need to know what the downside is. So just a couple of um, pieces of basic information. Guardianship is a legal procedure. Um, there are two types of guardianship. There's a guardianship of the person or a guardianship of the person in a state. So a guardianship of the person would be common if the child has no assets in their name. Maybe they have SSI benefits. Maybe they have a representative payee account. And the parents want to be able to make medical housing decisions for them. A guardianship of the person in the state would happen if that person has um, assets that need to be monitored and managed by the court. Regardless, if you have a guardianship of the person or the other person in a state, which we call a full guardianship, every year you will have to provide a report to the court on how your child is doing. Um, it's very hard to remove we have to show the court something medically has changed with the child or something has happened with them. Maybe they've recovered. We see this sometimes in um, brain injuries where maybe someone's been in a car accident. I had a, a client years ago where he was in a really bad car accident. He went through tear and he was able to manage his own assets and we restored him. But those are few and far between. Guardianship is expensive. You can go through one of the legal clinics to get assistance if that's something that you're interested in. Once you file an application to be guardian, you also have to file what they call a doctor's letter, which is going to lay out the things that your child has been diagnosed with and needs assistance. The court will then appoint something that's called an attorney ad litem, which is a, an attorney to represent your child's legal interests. They will also have a court investigator go to the home to make sure that guardianship is appropriate. Because what happens when somebody becomes another person's guardian, their person who's under the guardianship, their rights can be taken away. Um, sometimes they will not be able to make housing decisions. They won't be able to make marital decisions. They won't be able to make a will without going to any kind of court permission. So really think about guardianship. If it's the school that's wanting, I would say maybe can your child sign an educational power of attorney? I see some school districts that have their own educational power of attorney. Um, maybe you could have um, your child sign a financial medical power of attorney. And then what about supported decision-making process? It helps you get information on what's going on with your child help you walk through whatever steps um, needs to be thought about when making a big life decision. So I never have any family member just roll into guardianship unless we know that there's, maybe there's an, an emergency surgery that needs to be done and it's not clear who's gonna be making that decision if it's divorced parents. But I really like to take a, a, a step back and walk the client through everything. Okay, I think we've got... A question. Can you read yeah, that one for me? Okay. Uh, my son is going, is going, he's going to be 17 October. Um, so Teresa, um, what I would suggest that you do, and I don't know where you're living, I would first start with getting just a doctor's letter um, to see what your child's doctor thinks. Um, I can 
provide a link to the Harris County, oh, San Antonio, Texas. Okay. Um, so you'll, so since you're in Texas, um, I'll look and see Bear County if they have a um, different doctor's letter and I'll send it to Michelle. Um, I would start with there, Teresa, and see what your doctor thinks about guardianship. And I would maybe use um, um, a psychiatrist or a neurologist or somebody that really is familiar with your, um, or if he has an autism specialist who's really familiar with your child's um, um, diagnosis and capabilities. Um, then if they do, if the doctor does recommend um, guardianship, <laughs> she says, okay, I'm a doctor. He sees a pediatrician. Okay. Um, so the pediatrician's fine, but I would wait not right now because the doctor's letter can't be too old. It can't be what we call stale. So I would maybe like 30 days before his or 60 days before his 18th birthday, get a doctor's letter and then start the guardianship process. But you're definitely going to get legal counsel on if guardianship process right now is the right thing for you because it's going to be very, very case specific. But I'll be happy to provide those, the links to the doctor's letter, just so you can get some feedback from your doctor on what he or she would um, put in um, evidence that they would be filed with the court. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like I said, I'm obsessed with beneficiary designations. So maybe yeah, you won't forget. <laughs> okay. So get your spreadsheet, put every account and every asset on there. Then what you'll do is you'll think about what happens when the first account owner dies, what happens when the second account owner dies if there's multiple people on the account. If your child receives assets outright, it may cause them to have a loss of eligibility. And then we're using a first party supplemental needs trust or an ABLE account, um, which both have a payback provision to the state. And Michelle, since y'all do ABLE accounts, if someone's out there and they're not familiar, do you mind just filling everybody in on the ABLE account? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we're going to have an entire webinar about the ABLE account um, on the 19th. So I've been working on updating those slides. But an ABLE account is very similar to, uh, maybe you've heard of the 529C, which is the 529 College Savings Plan. This is just the same thing. It's a 529A for ABLE. And you can use this money to pay for anything for your child that will help them live a better life. It actually, ABLE stands for achieving a better life experience. Um, as long as they have a disability that began before age 26, they can have an ABLE account. Um, the beneficiary is the owner of, account, of the account. Anyone can put money into it, uh, but there are rules about how much you can put in. Um, like I said, if you're interested in learning about the ABLE account, definitely sign up for that webinar and uh, and you'll know more about it than you ever thought you wanted to know. <laughs> and uh, so I think the ABLE accounts are really exciting. There's certain clients of mine where the children are learning financial responsibility. Um, the beautiful thing about the ABLE accounts is that the Medicaid beneficiary's name can be on the account, even if it's more than $2,000, but get all this great information. Yeah, uh, yes. it does not affect, yeah, it does not affect their um, benefits like Social Security or Medicaid, um, but it does have that payback uh, Medicaid reimbursement to it. So, you know, you kind of have to be careful and it works really well in conjunction with the Supplemental Needs Trust because mm -hmm. one of them has a limit on how much you can put in, the other has no limit. One of them has limits on what you can use it for, the other has no limit on what you can use it for. You know, they, they work together. Absolutely. And sometimes you may need both or sometimes one would be appropriate. So what, what Michelle and I are saying is your estate planning is going to be just as unique and special as your family is. So, you know, what works for one family for estate planning is not going to work for the next family. Um, so on the beneficiary designations, just make sure that you review those with your tax professional, an attorney, your financial advisor. And the other thing, if you just really want to be an A-plus student on this, and I hope you all will be, is get written confirmation that the beneficiary designation has been updated. 
Um, there's lots of litigation that goes on with these beneficiary designations that, that someone thought they sent in the form, they didn't send in the form, or the documents aren't right, or maybe the financial institution got it and didn't update it on their record. You don't want to do that. You want to get written confirmation after you sent that beneficiary designation in, and then also make sure you send in that financial power of attorney for pre-approval as well. And just just read that first line again. The beneficiary designations yes. on your accounts <laughs> will trump what is in your will. So don't yeah. think that you've got it covered. Yeah. Yeah. I put it in my will. That's not going to be enough. Yeah. And so, and you, especially like if you have an ex-spouse or maybe a family member you don't like anymore as the primary beneficiary, or you've got an old IRA that you need to roll over. Um, check all of that. So if you've changed jobs, you may have got a retirement account that you may not remember who the beneficiary designation is. I know I had to do that. My husband used to work um, uh, for the state of Texas. And I'm like, oh yeah, what about that retirement account? We had oh, yeah. years ago? <laughs> it's not big, but it's not money to, you know, it, it's not zero. <laughs> yeah. It's still enough to yeah. Jeopardize those benefits. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so when we think about who is a trustee, I always like to say my three T's, the time, talent, and trustworthy. And so I always tell my clients, I would not be a good trustee. I hope I'm talented and I hope I'm trustworthy, but I'm a mom and a lawyer. I have no time. So we talked a little bit about a sibling as a trustee. Um, maybe a corporate fiduciary is going to be better. How do we divide the estate? What is fair? Some clients want to do just an equal distribution amongst the kids. Some clients want to give the child that may need um, special needs planning more money or all of the estate. Like we discussed, this is going to be just as unique to you as your own family um, dynamics are. My recommendation, especially if you're going to give maybe the child or children with a disability, more money, I, and you have other children, tell them now. Talk to them about your logic and your reasoning so that their um, hurt feelings are can be addressed now. Then we also have something that's called a letter of intent and consolidated planning group has a great webinar on this. It, it, it's fantastic. Um, it's a written instruction to the trustee and to the people who are caring for your child, how you want the money spent. I have some clients that are like, I want my kid to be on Medicaid. I want the trustee only be used for two vacations a year, medical, very strict. I have some clients that are like, we want the every penny spent on our kiddo. And there's everybody in between. So you can make those wishes known. And what I like about the letter of intent is you can change that without having to change the trust. So it gives you some flexibility on how you want to communicate your thoughts to the person that's in charge. Be yeah. sure that the people that are appointed know they're appointed. Um, I have lots of clients who are like, I never knew I was my brother's trustee. Parents never ask. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking, who's going to be the trustee for my child? I think you have to have someone that is really going to be able to spend 10 to 12 hours a week. To me, that is a lot of time. And it's not necessarily a job everybody wants or is good at doing. And you want the people in your child's life to be at positions that they're going to be good at. Like I told you, my oldest, he would be a great trustee for anybody. My youngest, I would never do it. <laughs> Now, Michelle, did you have a comment too? I think you. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the letter of intent, you know, those things, the letter of intent can be quite intense <laughs> because you want to say everything that you want people to know if they're stepping into your shoes as, mm -hmm. as caregiver for your mm -hmm. loved one. And another thing that I was thinking about, you know, we're talking about who is going to be the trustee. Um, and who's going to be on your team? And you mentioned, oh, I didn't even know I was the trustee. It's important that the people that you rely on to be your team once you're gone, that they know your child. I mean, if if possible. I mean, if you're using a corporate trustee, that's one thing. But spend time with these people. Have your child spend time with these people. Let them know um, 
who your loved one is so that they have a feel for what you want. You know, don't just bring it on them. Now, surprise, you've never met my kid, but now you're in charge. <laughs> unless, of course, like I said, unless it's a corporate mm-hmm. trustee. Um, it, and then I do see another question here. Christina, do you see that question? Yeah, yeah. Because the question was, what are they spending 10 to 12 hours a week on? <laughs> well, think about as a trustee, how much time you spend on your own individual finances and you know your own finances. Imagine taking over a whole different set of finances. So you're going to be doing the investments. You're going to be paying bills. You're going to be doing the tax returns. You're going to be paying care providers. So maybe it's not 10 to 12 hours a week forever, but initially it will be because you're going to be having to be organizing documentation, working with lawyers, working with financial advisors. Um, Maybe you can whittle that down to like three to five hours a week. I know my husband just for our own personal finances, he probably spends about three or five hours a week just making sure that, you know, all of our bills are paid, this is paid, that's paid, the long guys are paid. Think about all the things you do in your individual capacity. Updating your documents. If you've had a death or a divorce or a job change, definitely check. Um, I would say do it once a year. I always do my um, anniversary date. So my anniversary is June 3rd. I get out my Excel spreadsheet. I get my estate planning documents. I look at them. I make sure everything looks good. Not that I have that many accounts, but like the three to five accounts I have, everything looks good. And then I, you know, I'm a margarita person, but you could go get a Dr. Pepper or Dr. Pepper shake at Whataburger. In other words, reward yourself after you do this. Okay. Um, And then always check and make sure the people you appoint are willing and able to serve. Maybe you should take those people out for that yeah, margarita. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's right. I've, um, you know, I've, my parents are getting older, so we've had to make some changes. My husband's parents are getting older, so we've had to make some changes. And I'm hoping at some point in the future, my son, Luke, will be able to be involved with his cousin's life. Um, I don't know if he will be a trustee, but he'll be some kind of position to help his 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 cousin. Um, Max, my youngest, will probably be in some kind of advocacy role um, for his um, cousin. He's definitely um, an, a great advocate for people. Um, so um, make sure that you've got the people appointed that are going to be doing, they have the right personality for the job. Okay. Okay. And I think I got us done with eight minutes for questions. There's yes. one other, I'm going to put it in the chat box. Um, it's the, and I'm sorry, I probably should have put this on my research page. I'm going to put in the chat box. It's the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. And that is the parental group that this special needs legal practice grew out of. Most special needs planners used to be or have been elder law attorneys, as am, as am I. Um, but this is a great way. If you are out of state, I think we have somebody joining us from Georgia. Please check out NALA.org. There's a list of lawyers in Texas, in Houston, I'm not the only one, and um, and the state that you're living in or the region. So the um, attendee that's out of Bear County, there's lots of great lawyers in the San Antonio area as well. Thank you so much, Christina. I do have a few more slides, so don't please don't oh, run away yes. yet. Okay. Um, you will again. You will receive these slides, so you'll get uh, all of Christina's contact info and all of that. We do these webinars many times a week, uh, sometimes up to five times, five webinars a week, where we talk about all of these different topics related to special needs planning, like your special needs care plan and future care cost estimates. Oh, and by the way, this is a great time. If you think of uh, one last question for Christina, put it in the box and we'll get to it uh, before we sign off. we help with benefits like your waiver programs, SSI and SSDI. Where can you save money for your children that it won't affect their benefits like their ABLE accounts? Of course, beneficiary designations are always very important. That special needs trust, guardianship and alternatives to guardianship. We do a lot of webinars about um, residential communities and transition uh, programs and things like that. And what is available um, beyond high school in terms of educational options as well. Um, 
will send this and this link right here where it says upcoming webinars is going to be clickable. So you can see all of the webinars that we have coming up. I mentioned on the 19th, uh, later on this week, we're doing the ABLE account webinar. So you can look at that. Um, this is my team. Everyone on my team is fantastic. Like I said, Allison and Jeff have two special needs kids. So that's why we do what we do. Um, take a look closely at especially everyone except for Alan, Allison and Jeff. We might be calling you. We make phone calls every day. When you signed up for this webinar, you gave us your phone number, you gave us your email. So we're going to reach out and see if you have any further questions or if you want a free consultation with us. So please don't hang up on these, these smiling faces. We're, we're not going to bite, I promise. If you would like to go ahead and schedule your consultation before we call, then we don't have to call you. You can use the QR code or you can uh, call us or email us. Um, our consultation, it should last between 30 to 45 minutes, completely free. What we do is first answer whatever questions are just eating away at you. Um, you know, anything we can do to help up front, that's what we're there for. Then we want to learn about you and your family and tell you about how we work and, and see from there if it would be a good idea for you to work with our company. Um, if not, you know, there's no pressure, no big deal. You can also check out our YouTube, uh, Instagram, our podcast, and our Facebook page. Those links are all down there. Um, so definitely feel free to give us a call. Unfortunately, we do not have anyone at Consolidated Planning Group who speaks Spanish. But if you, if you have a translator, we're willing to um, do our best to work with you through that translator. Okay, so again, and if you're listening on our podcast and you want these slides, contact at cpgcares.net. So it looks like we have a couple more questions in the chat box. Christina, do you see those? Do you want to address those? Yeah, I think um, there was a question about how do we know which states are the best states and primarily we're looking at the no weight waiver state so texas is a weight waiver state meaning that you in order to receive these waiver programs unless you do this arduous process called money follows the person you have to wait um i would say probably contacting an attorney in the, the couple of states that are a no weight waiver state i think oregon is one of those states i believe arizona is but you're going to want to double check that information yeah, and it's if you're considering certain states, um, feel free to look up. You know, I, I mentioned that we're members of the Special Needs Planning Academy. Look up that website and they have listings for attorneys and financial advisors in that state. So you can call one or two of them and say, hey, how is it in Colorado or whatever state you're thinking about? Uh, ooh, I let my guardianship lapse several yeah, years that. ago. Yeah, so the question is, I let my guardianship lapse. My son is very compliant. Um, his rights are not automatically given back to him. He has to be restored. So I would contact that guardianship court immediately and ask them what the current, what your current status is. So I, I would do that relatively quickly. Christina, I don't know if you answered the question about what are the 10 to 12 hours a week is spent on the trustee? Yeah, we, can yeah we, we did, but I can swing back to it. So so typically we're, we're thinking about things like making investment decisions, paying care providers, doing the tax work, maintaining the books. I mean, it's a big job. It's a big job. I mean, I, I, I have delegated this out to my husband because I don't like QuickBooks, but I mean, it is, you have to track because you're, you have a fiduciary or a financial responsibility. The courts, third parties, they're going to look at anybody who's handling another person's money, even if it's under a trust. You have to do a better job with their money than you do your own. Mm. Yeah. And if you don't have everything documented, everything receipt, everything perfectly organized, then you may have a problem. Got so it. you can't just like, you know, pay the bills and not make sure that, you know, the check clear. You have to, it's very detailed. In fact, when I work with trustees on administration of trust, I make them have a bookkeeper. I, I won't work with them otherwise. 
unless they are like a bookkeeper or an engineer because then <laughs> those engineer brain. <laughs> I love engineers they're yes. some of my favorite clients but, right. but not everybody so not everybody <laughs> has that type of skill set <laughs> so well thank you again everybody oh, thank you so here. much Christina right. great to see y'all definitely and Veronica and everybody who joined us thank today you, enjoy your week um let us know if you have questions we are here to help thank you so much bye everybody okay so bye-bye bye Securities and advisory services offered through Triad Advisors, member FINRA and SIPC, Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated and Triad Advisors LLC are not affiliated. Advisory services offered through Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated. Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated is not affiliated with Triad Advisors.